Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. I know this is not our usually scheduled time, but I'm actually going to be on a very long road trip starting tomorrow and uh, trying to do this out of the car would have been difficult, especially with my nine-year-old and seven-year-old in the background. So I <laughs> appreciate those of you that could join us today. I think we've got a really cool topic here. Um, everything you need to know about metabolic adaptation. And as you can see, Dr. Brad is here with us. So say hello, Dr. Brad. Hola, como estas? <laughs> I hope you don't speak the whole thing in Spanish, right? Yep, that's me uh, flexing my right brain language skills for the day. There you go. And I'm wearing my new ETP tank. <laughs> oh, the gear is sweet. <laughs> right? Um, I would be wearing the hoodie, except it's in the wash. So the hoodie is cool, too. You already are washing it? Yeah. Well, I have this thing about washing things before I wear them. So. I wear things like 15 times before I wash them, even if they're <laughs> gross, because they never fit the same after you wash them. Well, it's true. And I never used to be this way, but my husband's this way. And then he kind of, I saw some, like, dermatologist report that, like all the the gross things that are on your shirts chemically wise. So you should wash them before you wear them. But this is why you don't read Susie. I know, just, right? Just avoid all content. That's true. Especially anything on the internet. So, um, okay. So anyway, who are we? Um, obviously, you know, brief, brief introduction. I'm Susie. I've uh, been doing this for a while. I'm always happy to go through topics. Sometimes we have more scientific, less scientific. Uh, sometimes we have Paul. Sometimes we have, you know, various guests on. Um, we've done, you know, videos of people, coaches showing food prep and exercises and such. So this is always a fun time. Um, Dr. Brad, why don't you start with um, some of your background on this topic in particular and update us on anything else we should know? Oh, um. My background on this topic is I've been interested in this topic for probably 15 years and I've spent a lot of time reading a lot about it and I've done metabolism research professionally. Um, so I would say that's, that's my background. You know, one of the interesting things is, you know, this, this topic has, has actual scientific basis back of, man at this point almost 80 years so it's not like this is a new topic this is something that was initially studied in the 40s um so yeah about 20 or about 80 years ago is when they started looking into this topic wow um cool well so then guys just real briefly so we're gonna get into this topic and then we are going to hang out and answer your questions um, so these slides are really meant to just be a guideline, um, some talking points on where, you know, where we kind of want the discussion to go. Um, but certainly we can can go into everything a, a bit more in depth. So, Brad, start here. What what do we know? What is metabolic adaptation? What are we talking about? And then, you know, what do we know is true about what happens to your metabolism when you are eating in a deficit? Yeah, so there's there's kind of the big first question that needs to be addressed is this idea of metabolic damage. Um, and there's a few things to say about it. One is, you know, people have this 
view of metabolism is it's like this thing, this black box in your body. Uh, and really what metabolism is, is it's the, the sum of all chemical reactions in your body. Right? That's, that's really what it comes down to. Um, and so your metabolism really is this, this large summation of all the you know, biochemical processes in your body. So it's not like this black box thing. Um, and the second thing is to realize is it's, it adapts to everything, right? It adapts to, I mean, it adapts very acutely. So like when you are engaging in exercise, your metabolism is adapting. Like when I get on the treadmill, my metabolism is adapting. It's increasing its rate of expenditure to provide energy. When I lay on the couch, it's adapting. It's down-regulating a lot of stuff because it doesn't need as much energy. So it's it's always adapting. And then as you place different demands on it, it adapts, right? Acutely and chronically, it will adapt, right? That's one of the things that we do know is acutely and chronically, your metabolism adapts. It, it's never broken. It just adapts to the different stimuli it's given to. Um, it's kind of, you know, think about it like your your muscles or your bones when you're engaging in, you know, resistance training. Your bones adapt, your muscles adapt, your nervous system adapts, your metabolism also adapts in the same type of manner. As you put more demands on it, it will increase. As you put less demands on it, it will decrease and vice versa. So that's the first piece. Um, and then what happens in a calorie deficit so we know that in order for your body weight to decrease, you have to have a net deficit, right? That's just, it's just the way the universe works. And there's a lot of different ways you can create that deficit. You know, you can just reduce food intake. Um, you can increase exercise or you can do a combination of both. And each type of approach has different responses, right? So if you just decrease calories, you know, you're changing the stimuli on your body, and then your body's adapting to it, right? So if you're if you're eating less food, that's all you're doing for weight loss, you know, your body's going to adapt in that direction, right? You're going to use less energy to metabolize your food. You're going to have less energy available for physical activity. You're going to have less energy available to make certain hormones. You're going to have less precursors to make certain hormones. Um, if you increase your exercise, you're going to require your metabolism to upregulate certain processes. You're going to you know, require your body to physically adapt. Your muscle tissue is going to have to change. Your bone tissue is going to have to change, um, et cetera. So each direction causes adaptations either way. So that's the first piece. Susie, do you have any additional thoughts on that? Well, the way I like to explain this is if it was as simple as a math equation. So if it was as simple as, I'm going to eat 500 calories less than what I burn for seven days, then I'm going to lose a pound a week. If it was that simple, then I think nobody would need us, right? So the way I like to explain is this is where metabolic adaptation comes in um, is because if weight loss were that easy, um, you know, that mathematical equation would just go on forever until you lost the weight that you wanted to lose. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. But yeah. then the problem is, is it you can't go to zero, right? Like your body just will never go to zero. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about the adaptations that are occurring. So some of these examples I have here, um, what is mitochondrial efficiency? How is that increased? 
Um, and then you, you hit on energy expenditure, but not so much the hormonal changes. Yeah, um, you know, I think the, the idea of increased mitochondrial efficiency is an interesting piece. Um, and there is some data to suggest that does happen as you, you know, decrease calorie intake, you know, less gets burned off as heat, more gets converted into energy. Um, I don't think that makes up a huge part of what, you know, the adaptations that people think of. But the mm -hmm. bigger ones are, you know, decreased energy expenditure. So when you reduce calorie intake, we know your energy expenditure goes down. Um, and there's a few main pieces that drive that. One is it requires energy to, you know, metabolize your food, to break it down, right? So about, depending on the person, 5 to 10% or so of your total daily energy expenditure is just using energy to break down the food you're consuming. So let's say you eat 3,000 calories and you spend, you know, 150 to 300 calories a day just breaking down your food. Now if you're consuming 1,500 calories a day, you know, you're using 75 to 150 calories to break down your food. So you're just using less energy to break down what you're consuming. We also know that your spontaneous physical activity or your non-exercise activity thermogenesis decreases in most people who just reduce calorie intake. So if you go from 3,000 to 1,500, even if you don't think you are, your body's moving less during the day, right? You're less likely to fidget, you're more likely to sit, you're less likely to walk, and your overall physical activity just decreases. Um, so it's really interesting that even, you know, autonomically, you start adjusting your physical activity just because of what you do. And then uh, the hormonal changes is, this is probably one of the most well-studied aspects of, you know, dieting, caloric restriction, et cetera, is your hormones adapt. Um, and they adapt relatively quickly, um, and then those changes can stay for quite a long time. So we know that, you know, in periods of sustained calorie deficits, we know thyroid hormone typically decreases. Um, in terms of, you know, just T3 levels, your conversion rates, all those, all that hormone panel basically just shifts to less thyroid activity. And that makes sense, right? Thyroid is kind of the gas of your metabolism. And so if you have less fuel coming in, you're going to want to burn less of it. So your thyroid hormone is going to decrease a little bit. Um, we know sex hormones change, right? We know testosterone levels in men typically drop. We know in women that and estrogen levels start to change. Um, we know, you know, a lot of your, your other hormones, things like cortisol, that shifts as you diet. So we just know that the whole hormonal profile, you know, starts to shift as you diet. And the more extreme your diet and the longer, you know, your calorie restriction sustains, the more those changes start to shift and the longer those changes stick around. Yeah, and I have a question. I have two questions on this, actually. So um, one thing that I've heard is that with the thyroid um, changes, that low-carb diets can actually cause a faster slowdown in metabolism due to thyroid changes. Is that something that's proven true in the literature? So it, it appears that lower-carbohydrate approaches may accelerate that problem. Um, a lot of the stuff that I've seen – those changes aren't, those differences are not gigantic um, and they haven't really been studied 
very well long term. But what we do know is, you know, if all things else are equal and you adopt a low fat diet versus a super low carbohydrate diet and a calorie restriction, the low carbohydrate approach tends to result in faster changes in thyroid hormone. Um, at least that's what most of the evidence tends to suggest. Um, cool. And then, so the second question I have is the role of um, the brain and those hunger hormones, um, like ghrelin and leptin, how do those change um, you know, when you're, when you're dieting for a long period of time? So those are, those hormones, ghrelin especially changes more acutely um, throughout the day. So it's got more of a, you know, diurnal response. It has more, you know, when's the last time you ate? Have you just eaten? Um, so it, it has some acute fluctuations. And then as you diet, that baseline level of ghrelin starts to change too. So you start to experience more hormonal regulated hunger. Um, at least that's the typical response for most people. And then leptin, leptin is an interesting hormone in that, whereas ghrelin is more of a kind of acute day-to-day -day regulating hunger, leptin is more of a long-term hunger signal. Um, and that one's a little less understood in terms of how it works in calorie restriction, especially because People who are currently obese and losing weight, their leptin signaling is much different than people who are, you know, already fairly lean and trying to lose weight. So we know that leptin resistance occurs in people with obesity and that as you lose weight, that resi leptin resistance drops, but it never fully comes back to baseline, um, at least in the studies that have been done that's looking at it. So in that time frame, the leptin resistance doesn't come back to baseline but it does get better um, and that if you then add recombinant leptin on top of it, you can restore some of that normal function. So that leptin piece over time, um, at least from my perspective, is not fully understood in terms of calorie restriction, especially in obese versus lean people. We know that people who are already lean, they're going to have you know, larger changes in leptin that actually mean something and actually work on the human body. So if you are a fairly lean person, right? So let's say you have, you know, 15 to 20% body fat and you're dieting down and your body fat levels start to reach, you know, the 8 to 12% if you're a man, your leptin levels are going to start to increase and that hunger is going to come back, you know, both the chronic hunger and then the acute day-to-day -day hunger. So that's typically how those types of hormones start to play into things. And explain real quick what, what ghrelin and leptin is, because I've always understood ghrelin is kind of that hunger hormone, and then leptin is the hormone that signals you're full. Is that correct? Um, I don't know if I would classify it as that, because I think there's, you know, there's the, the terms hunger and satiety. I think people try to make false dichotomies, um, and I think that they're kind of, you know, they don't, they're not mutually exclusive. I think they overlap. I think ghrelin is more of a, a hunger signaling, like neurologically, um, at least from my understanding. And I think leptin is more of a works on both energy expenditure and food intake. So it's a little bit more of energy balance per se. And I think it has more effects than just ghrelin does. I mean, we know leptin works in the central nervous system. We know it works in the peripheral tissue to shift 
um, fat oxidation and things like that. So leptin's a little more complicated, um, whereas ghrelin is a little bit more just hunger related. Um, so they, they are a little bit different in that aspect. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And if you're, I mean, anybody who's dieted for a long period of time understands that you can have very intense food cravings um, mm -hmm. with caloric restriction versus, you know, when we get people who spend some time in um, our recomp um, phase can see that eating more, um, you know, all of a sudden those, those really <laughs> intense hunger cravings go away. And I would think that, that these hormones play a role in that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so moving on. So what do we know? So what happens? Um, so what are the effects of these adaptations? You know, how do they work against you? And then how do they play into, you know, potential for weight gain or, you know, actually putting on more body fat when your, you know, diet is over? Yeah, so there's... There's been a lot of discussion on this, and there's kind of the, the things that aren't true, and there's the things that are true, at least as best we understand currently in, in the scientific literature. And the first thing is, you know, when you think about dieting and weight loss, right, there's a few key leverage points you really have to control. One is, you know, can you manage hunger so your your day-to-day -day life is sustainable? Can you maintain your physical activity? And can you try to keep your your metabolism from adapting as much as possible, right? So those are kind of the three main things I think about. So as calorie restriction gets larger and is sustained for longer, your body starts to respond and hunger signals start to be pretty aggressive. Um, and so that's the first piece, right? We know that you're going to become more hungry. Your, you know, relationship psychologically with food starts to change. And so that's the first piece is, is understanding the, the hunger piece and then the psychology of it. Uh, the second piece is this idea of non-exercise activity, right? We know that when it comes to weight loss specifically, you know, exercise is a small piece of that, right? And the just low level physical activity is a much larger piece in terms of how you control total daily calorie expenditure. And if dieting and caloric restriction naturally causes you to, to move less and have less of this low level activity, that's the second adaptation and psychological adaptation you have to start to kind of address and consider and be very active in terms of making sure you regulate that. Um, and then the third piece is, you know, how quickly do hormonal changes start to occur, um, and how large are those, right? So there's very few situations where these are, your metabolism adapts so much where weight loss is impossible, right? I mean, if, if that were true, then, you know, starvation would not work, right? Um, very low calorie diets would not work. So we know those things work, but the problem that comes into play is you do start to have some metabolic adaptation, right? Either, you know, as you start to lose body weight, you're just burning less calories because you have less mass. Um, you know, most of that reduction caloric expenditure comes from, you know, loss of organ tissue because your organs do atrophy and those are the largest caloric expenditure in your body. Um, your fat mass decreases. That is metabolically active. Your muscle mass often decreases. That 
is metabolically active. And all those things are a huge piece, right? They're not like, you know, if you lose two pounds of muscle, your metabolism drops by 50%. It's not that big. It's very small, but it does contribute to it. And then you just have things like your thyroid hormone does decrease. And that does decrease your, you know, your metabolism a little bit. Your thermic effect of food decreases. So all those things do adjust. And so as those adjust, if you want to continue to maintain you know, the relative level of caloric expenditure, you have to continue to trim down your intake or you have to increase your expenditure. And at some point that, you know, reward versus, uh, you know, restriction you have to have starts to become less and less, right? So that's why after certain periods, kind of makes sense to stop going after a calorie deficit because you're getting less and less return on your investment and you have to get more and more extreme to have the same results. That's why people who, you know, in the first 30 days lose 10 pounds and then lose five pounds and then lose two pounds and then they're you know eating a thousand calories and they're losing a pound a month and they're getting really frustrated. So it's you have to realize when have I reached this very low ROI and then when do I start, you know, kind of building back all these pieces so I can go after it again. Now this idea of weight rebound or body fat overshoot, you know, there's been a lot of discussion of you know, your body's in this starvation mode. It's primed to store extra body fat. And I think there's some there's some very basic science that tells us that, you know, your body is more likely to probably store a little bit extra body weight. But that is not really – it doesn't manifest in the real world as this huge thing, right? It's, it's kind of one of those things where when you dive into basic biochemistry – and, you know, underlying physiology, there's some truth there, but it's not like it's, you know, you lose 30 pounds, your body wants to store 40. It's not, it's not like that. Um, so this idea of weight rebound or body fat overshoot is, I think, largely related to how people respond after periods of large restriction, right? It's kind of like, if you think about, you know, just your day-to-day -day life, right? You work really, really hard. You're stressed out, then you go on vacation and all you do is like you over exaggerate and you just lay on the beach for three days and you don't move at all, right? You kind of do the same thing with dieting is you go with this overly restrictive process. You you know, you're in the gym six hours a day, you're doing all this stuff and your body's losing weight and then you get done and you're like, okay, back to normal. And then you, you know, start having a little more food than normal. You start exercising less and over time you start to shift your habits back the other way um, so I don't think there's this like underlying problem with you and your physiology that causes weight rebound and body fat overshoot it's more of you just start changing the things that you were doing and it leads you down that path right well that makes sense and I know I don't know when was it like last year or two years ago when the biggest loser study came out yeah um, Curious if that's kind of, you know, what did what did people, what did we learn from that study? Um, I, I figured somebody might ask about that. So just briefly, are you familiar? Yeah, so I, haven't, I haven't read that paper in a, probably two years. Um, but the, the gist of it was is the process of losing substantial amounts of weight requires a very large intervention. And... <laughs> To sustain that, you have to maintain a very high level of physical activity. Um, and a lot of people 
don't sustain the high level of physical activity because it's fairly unsustainable for most people in the modern world. Um, and so there's this idea of, you know, these large interventions that require these you know, massive adaptations to your body very quickly. Once you kind of hit that bottom, you're going to come back um, be, often because you can't sustain that level of intervention for that long. Um, and that's like, there was a lot of really interesting stuff in that paper, but when I step back and look at it, that's kind of how I think about what they found is, you know, if you lose a hundred pounds, it's going to require a massive intervention to lose a hundred pounds in a year. There's going to be pieces of that, that, you know, do cause some metabolic adaptation, um, that will have to be taken into account. And then as you start to let your foot off the gas of that aggressive intervention, you are going to have some weight rebound. Um, and this is one of the things that I think a lot of people who, you know, go from very obese to losing a lot of weight, whether it's through lifestyle, whether it's through even bariatric surgery is that zine or that, uh, that nadir you hit, like that very low point is not the level where you're going to sustain for a long time. Um, and you have to realize that that process down, there's going to be a process back up. And at some point you're going to find that that very bottom level is not where you're going to be. Like you can even make the analogy to how we do fat loss cycles with people, right? If we pull your calories down, and you lose, you know, 15 pounds in your fat loss cycle, that pound 15 is also, you have to remember, your glycogen depleted, it's the lowest calorie intake you're on, you're probably kind of dehydrated at that point. So while your body weight is down here, where your optimal level at your new, you know, balanced state's probably closer to 13 to 12 pounds. And so people need to start wrapping their mind around that. It's kind of like, you know when you get paid on Friday, and you see, oh, I've got, you know, $1,000 in the bank account. Well, you don't really have $1,000, right? Because tomorrow, credit card bill is going to come out, the cable bill is going to come out, and you really only have like $400, and that $600 is just like tricking you Friday night until Monday comes around. Right. Yeah, good analogy. Um, one of the things I want to talk about here in these um, misconceptions, or maybe I have it a little bit later, is um well maybe it's on the next slide so let's talk about this part so so you've already talked about this a little bit so can this make weight loss impossible um how dire is the situation and then you know are you doing something wrong um if you can no longer lose weight or you know we have people who come to us who have been eating um very little and are actually gaining weight um so Talk about this a little bit and, and really, you know, how much is this metabolic adaptation playing a role um, in, in stopping your weight loss? So these metabolic adaptations never make weight loss impossible, right? You, I mean, you can go to zero calorie intake and you will continue to lose weight, right? Which fundamentally tells you that these adaptations never hit the point of making things impossible. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like if you are, you know, let's say you, you balance your budget every month and you make exactly as much as you spend and you can never save money. It's like, okay, well, even if I have all these expenses and I can't cut anything out of my life, 
I can always go make more money, right? Like I can always just pick up a second job or a fourth job or whatever. However, you know, masochistic or dedicated you are to making money, you can always go out there and find a way to add a little bit to the bottom lines. Same thing with dieting is there really is fundamentally no point at which metabolic adaptations make it impossible, but they can make it very difficult. Um, I would say the problem is not dire for most people, right? I think most people, there's very few cases, and I would say, you know, a very small percentage of the population have a substantial problem with their metabolism that makes it impossible. What usually happens is people have been, you know, dieting for way too long and they have their priorities just out of order um, and that they they need to understand that there are there are periods where you need to diet and there's periods where you need to not diet. Um, that comes down to your metabolic adaptations. It comes down to your body's ability to be physically active, psychologically with food. It's just so multifactorial. Um, and I think the, the you are doing something wrong. I don't know if it comes down to you know people doing the wrong thing per se, whereas they just don't really understand how to get over the hurdle that is in front of them. Um, you know, a lot of it is, you know, we're kind of taught this message of if something's not working, just work harder. In reality, it's like, you know, if you want to make, if you want to be a billionaire, you can't do that being a cashier at McDonald's, right? Like there's nothing wrong with working that type of job, but you can't, I mean, even if you worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you never get to being a billionaire. You have to shift the way you're thinking about the problem and how you start thinking about making money and all that stuff. Same thing with dieting, right? If your only thought for weight loss is I have to eat as little as possible, there's so many other ways to do it, right? And there's so many other approaches and you just have to shift how you're thinking about the actual issue itself. Right. And I often say that, you know, for somebody who's coming in low calorie and not losing weight or even gaining weight, um, and Brad, I mean, you and I see this all the time. Um, I don't think that's a calorie problem, right? I mean, I think that that's either a priority problem or, uh, you know, sometimes it's a cortisol problem um, or, you know, something else is going on there, but it's very rarely a calorie problem. Yeah, I would say very few people fundamentally have a an eating. I would say most people who've been trying to lose weight dieting for a long time they don't really have at bottom a eating too much food problem. Now, Great. people would probably try to, you know, hang me on a wall for that because they're obviously eating more than they're expending, but the food piece is not the fundamental problem typically, right? It's it's typically how they're approaching their dieting, right? How they structure their physical activity, what role they think exercise plays, how they structure the rest of their life, and then you know, how smart are they with their actual dieting approaches? Um, you know, how many people do we see say, you know, I've been on a diet for 30 years and I'm, you know, I've never really lost weight. Well, that probably tells you something about everything but their actual food selection, right? And that's where you have to start getting into a lot of the other pieces. And that doesn't necessarily mean their metabolism is broken or their metabolism is fundamentally adapted. It just means where you've put your priorities 
for weight loss have, have not been optimal. And there's a lot of room for improvement. Yeah, I agree with that. So let's go on. Um, you know, finally, so what can we do about this? Um, you know, I have some bullet points here we can address. Um, I'll let go through that first and then I have a few questions for you. So um, how about this first one? So sufficient protein, can that help? Absolutely. So protein helps you maintain lean mass. Um, it has a higher thermic effect of food. And it helps with satiety and controlling hunger, right? So those are kind of the three main points you want to hit when you are dieting and sufficient protein helps you do that. Okay. So yeah. So go on to these other points. So well-designed exercise regimen. You know, one of the things that we talk about this a lot in the certification course is when you're thinking about weight loss specifically is understanding the role of exercise in that. Um, exercise fundamentally is for driving adaptation, right? And the caloric expenditure associated with exercise is a, is a benefit to weight loss, but it's not the primary focus of exercise. Um, so when you start thinking about your exercise regimen is it should be A, something you enjoy and is sustainable, and B, is driving the adaptations you want, right? So if you want a very lean muscular physique while you're losing weight, train to build muscle, and use everything else to drive the calorie deficit to lose body fat, right? You wouldn't want to go out and run 26 miles to drive, you know, cardiovascular adaptation if you're trying to build a lean muscular physique, right? So it's chase the adaptation and then let, you know, all the other variables control the calorie deficit to lose the body fat. So this, this third bullet point about the argument for the smallest possible deficit is I think that's been one of those questions that's kind of fundamentally asked the wrong question for a long time, right? People argue about the, the magnitude of the deficit, and it really is what's the magnitude of the deficit and what is the length of the deficit? I think one of the, one of the things we've learned in terms of real-world application is there is a good argument to be made for large deficits over you know, shorter to moderate periods than small deficits over a very long time. And one of the things is we know when you have small deficits, people's margin of error is much smaller, right? But if you have a large deficit, people can have, you know, missteps here or there, but they're still accumulating deficits fairly quickly. And then we know that psychologically people's approach to dieting is needs to be in shorter chunks. That just seems to be more sustainable for people and repeatable. And so if they know that there's a window in which they have to operate, it's it works a lot better. Um, so I would say it's more of a magnitude and the length of the dieting cycle than just the app, you know, just the, the amount of that deficit. Mm -hmm. And then making adjustment when weight loss stalls. Really when weight loss stalls, you kind of have a few, op you have probably in my mind three main options. You pull food down more. Mm -hmm. um, you increase physical activity or you take a dieting break. Those are kind of the three main options and it kind of depends on each person, right? If you're consuming, you know, a thousand calories a day already and your weight loss is stalled, pulling calories down is not the answer. Now, if you're at 3000 calories a day and your weight loss is stalled, you have, you have options. You know, right. if you are not exercising very much, in your weight loss stalls, then you have the option to add more exercise. If you're you know, training 15 hours a week and you're walking around a lot in your weight loss stalls, adding more exercise is not gonna give you a lot of benefit. 
So then when you get in situations where you don't have a lot of variables to move around, that's when you want to just kind of take a dieting break. Yeah, and let me ask, because I get this question too, how long how long do you wait until you kind of make that judgment call that weight loss is stalled? Because like, uh, I, in my own experience, I cannot lose a single pound for three weeks and then I'll drop three pounds. So what sort of things are you looking at to determine if weight loss is really stalled? Um, I think it really depends on a few things. One is how often are people weighing themselves? Like if they're weighing themselves once a week, and you may not see a signal on the scale for a month just because of the fluctuations. The other one is, you know, mentally, how's the person doing, right? If they're totally fine to stick into the plan and they're patient, then, you know, I don't make adjustments for, you know, four weeks, three weeks, you know, but if you have somebody who's like, Hey, I need to be seeing a pound a week every week and they're weighing every day and it's been, you know, three weeks and they haven't seen anything or even two weeks, then you can make some sort of adjustment. So it's kind of the art and the science of, physiology and then mentally understanding where people are at right and it makes sense because if for someone who's um, trying to drop weight for a competition or a fitness show um, you know that stall you know it could be could be a matter of days you know versus somebody who's who's in it for a much longer period of time so that makes sense um, okay so you mentioned briefly cardio um, is there an idea that, that there could possibly be too much cardio um, when you're trying to lose weight? Um, I think physiologically, there's there's really no like amount that once you get to your body starts holding on to body weight like that never happens. But it just becomes a return on investment problem, right? Is you know going from 10 miles a week to 15 miles a week is probably not increasing your body weight loss that much, right? You're probably not that's probably not the thing that's holding you back. Um, you know, you're probably more likely to accumulate injuries if you're not, you know, adapted to that much. And it just starts to become a, an ROI problem, right? The same thing is like if you're running 50 miles a week going to 60 miles a week, it's probably not what's going to put you over the hump. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Okay. And then talk about um, a little bit about some programs have these carbohydrate refeeds. Some don't. We've experimented a little bit with it. Um, what can those do to sort of offset any metabolism changes? Well, the, there's a few ways, you know, one is just the fact that when you refeed carbohydrates, people have a little more energy to train in the gym, um, and they can have better training sessions. They can accumulate more volume. They can expend more calories in the gym. Um, it can improve their recovery. There's also some evidence that these carbohydrate refeeds during restriction kind of help me slow down some of the, the hormonal changes. So like thyroid hormones specifically. And then there's the psychological factor. Whenever you openly restrict foods and you allow for some sort of, you know, people know that there's a little reprieve, uh, that's, that's pretty beneficial. Yeah, I agree with that. And then, so the last point, reverse dieting, that's a bit of what you're talking about. Um, dieting break. Um, how do we control that, that reverse um, when you're coming out of a diet? Yeah, there's there's been a lot of discussion on this, and I think there's kind of two two thoughts. One is introduce it as slow as possible to you know minimize body fat accumulation and body weight you know rebound. Or there's the idea of getting you back to maintenance as quick as possible. Um, and from my perspective, getting people back to maintenance or you know 
normal intake as fast as possible makes a lot more sense. You know, one is if you, you know, even if you rapidly increase your calories, you might add, you know, half to 1% body fat. Um, but you're going to get, you know, hormones will regulate much faster. Your sleep's going to improve a lot faster and you can get to the gym and your training volume can increase much faster. So you just get back to normal faster and that small increase in body fat that may occur on top of a slower one, A, visibly is not that noticeable and B, is not really, you know, long-term going to add up to much. And it's a lot better to just get back to normal as fast as possible. So you can kind of get back into, you know, beast mode, so to speak. Right. But psychologically, that can be very difficult for some people. Yeah. And that's, that's where the argument of slow approaches for some people are better, right? Because if somebody has lost a lot of weight and they're like, well, I refuse to put two and a half pounds on the scale. It's like, okay, well now we have to play that game. (laughs) Right. Um, yeah, well, that's all very good. Um, the one question I anticipate a little bit is, um, let me get your thoughts on metabolic testing. Um, where do you sit with that? I think for 99% of people getting metabolic tests done is not helpful. Um, mostly because it's one of those things that you don't have control over. Um, and B, I think it psychologically gets in people's heads. Right. So, I mean, when you think about total daily energy expenditure, that resting metabolic rate that, you know, a metabolic test tells you one is not people will tell you it's really accurate, but it's not right. Like it's not as accurate as people think. And then two, you don't have any control over it. So if anything, it's just going to paralyze you either thinking that you're broken and have a slow metabolism or it's going to make you think you have a really high metabolism and can do whatever you want. Whereas you can control your non-exercise activity, you can control your physical activity, like your structured physical exercise, and then you can control the thermic effect of food by how much protein you eat and how many calories you eat. So it's one of those things where, you know, if you have some weird metabolic condition and it's part of like your differential diagnosis, it makes sense. But for most people just trying to lose weight, I find them almost unhelpful and not really adding much to the equation. Right. And it's one thing that we you can see through this discussion is that your metabolism is very dynamic. So, yeah. you know, getting a reading, you know, on, on December 20th, you know, it's just kind of like a, a snapshot. Right. So it's a point in time. But it yeah. doesn't mean that's, that's, you know, permanently that is what your metabolic rate is. Precisely. Yes. Um, OK, well, we are going to, you know, ask your questions here. Uh, there is a little hand raised to sign, so you can type them in. Uh, we'll hang out and kind of um, see what questions we have uh, while um, while we've got Dr. Brad here. Uh, but most of all, we appreciate your, your tuning in. We will have this recording available uh, very soon, so we'll get it uploaded to our podcast. And feel free to share it with uh, non-ETP members or family members or, or Anyone you know, maybe on an extreme diet. Go ahead. I'm going to take a 30 second break real quick while questions are coming in. Uh, uh-huh. And I'll be right back. Okay. All right. I don't see any questions yet. So um, give you guys a little bit more time. 
Um, okay, I see one from Chris. So when when Brad gets back, we'll we'll ask him that one. Um, you know, one of the questions I had for him, but I didn't ask it, was uh, you know how long is too long? Oops, phone's ringing. Um, and I think we've kind of discussed that. It's probably an individual basis, like how long you know in caloric restriction is too long. But I think Brad made a very good argument to do it in the way that we do it, in the sense that that deficit should be should be deep. And, and you know for a shorter amount of time and then you know repeat it over the course of a year um, or you know however long it is to get you to your weight goal so and there okay. he is okay. so we have a few questions I'm going to start with Chris um, she says postmenopausal and an endurance athlete I know I need to add in weight training how much so I would start small and slowly increase over time, right? The thing that we know about, there's kind of a few things we understand about resistance training in terms of you know, adding muscle tissue and improving bone tissue is one, this idea of progressive overload, right? Is you need to just take where you currently are and just take the next step, right? And that's way better than just trying to add a whole lot at once. Um, and then the second thing is we know that volume Training volume is one of the biggest determiners of, you know, muscle adaptation in terms of size. So you kind of want to take where you are, and if that's currently, you know, nothing, you know, add in one to two days a week of, you know, probably 10 to 15 total sets of, of training, right? So that would be, you know, maybe pick three exercises or four exercises and do three to five sets of each, depending on how many you choose. And then, you know, start that with one day a week and then maybe two days a week and then three days a week. And then when you hit however many days a week you can do it, then just start adding, you know, more sets and more reps in. Um, but start at step one and just slowly progress that over time. I would say that's the those are the two pieces of advice I would give you. Yeah, for sure. And then what about this, the postmenopausal issues? Do you see changes in um, metabolic rate associated with menopause? So the, the changes in metabolic rate post-menopause don't, at least in the scientific literature, don't seem to be large enough to really cause this, this massive increase in body weight, right? There's, there's kind of this story out there of when you become menopausal, your body weight just gets out of control and you start adding a lot of body fat really quickly. The, the scientific literature doesn't seem to support that idea. What it does support is you do have a change in metabolism. It is small, but it's present. Mm -hmm. uh, it does tend to shift your body composition a little bit, but nothing, you know, it's not like you go from, you know, as a woman, 20% body fat to, you know, 30% body fat in the span of a couple of years if nothing else changed. What typically happens is exercise starts to decrease, um, sleep starts to get worse, all these other things start to change. So it's not typically the menopause per se that causes these massive changes in people. It's a lot of other things that are tangentially related. Right. And that's why in so many instances, I mean, no matter what your age, the strength training piece is important. But as we age, um, it's just known that, that your lean body mass will decrease. Um, and lean body mass is, is responsible for a huge part of the calories that your body just naturally burns at rest. Um, so having that as part of your program um, is definitely important. And like Brad said, you know, start out slow um, and it doesn't need you don't need to be, you know, beast mode in the gym seven days a week. 
Um, you know, I think eventually aim for three days, maybe four. Um, but you know, having having a weight component to your program um, is super important. Mm -hmm. so. Yep. Um, okay, so Marie Eve, um, so she's a flexible dining coach with many clients. Uh, uses the ETP method. Uh, she has her certification. Um, it says most of the time it works well, but sometimes I have people that are resistant to weight loss after a few months of building up. Then I cut calories and keep cutting calories and no response. So Brad, this is something we've seen too. Um, so address the idea that that now, you know, they work their calories out, but now they're in what should be a deficit, but we don't see weight loss. So there's kind of a few things, right? Is the first is you have to try to determine the veracity of what's going on, right? Like, is their data accurate? Are they really consuming the calories they're say, they say they're consuming, right? Make sure that that's accurate. If they have food logs, if you can, you know, try to pick through, through that, make sure that that's accurate. Um, that's the first piece. And then the second piece is what else is changing with their, their calorie restriction, right? So if, if they were actually eating, you know, 3,000 calories a day, we brought them down to 2,000, and over the span of three weeks, they didn't lose any body weight, um, and they really were eating 2,000 calories, and they really were eating, or if they really were eating 3,000, and then they really were eating 2,000, that tells you that other things have changed, right? Either their physical activity has dropped, um, their training in the gym has dropped, or you know their sleep has gotten horrible, or they've gone on medication, et cetera, right? So it's kind of you have to do the the differential diagnosis of what's the most likely scenario. Can I see if that's the issue and then move to the next one? And the hierarchy really is, are they, were they really following the plan and were they really eating that much? And now are they really eating that much? Has their physical activity changed substantially? Um, are they on any medications that they've changed? So kind of step through each, each piece of that. And then if at the end of the day, none of that makes sense, then you have somebody who's broken the law of physics, right? So, <laughs> right. Yeah, there, there's there's always something there. There's never a scenario where it's like there's not an answer. Right. Yeah. So a lot of that is just learning to ask the right questions. Um, yeah. Brad's taught me a lot of that. Um, and I know, you know, you mentioned medications. You know, sometimes there are medications that that can make weight loss more difficult, or at least um, you know, maybe they've started taking a uh, steroid uh, for, and um, you know, treating some sort of, um, you know, inflammation. And I know steroids can cause massive amounts of fluid retention, things like that. But um, yeah, or the other one I see a lot is that, that sleep is just terrible, you know. And until they fix the sleep, that's a priority question, you know. Um, and that's when we say a lot of times the calories aren't the issue. Sometimes it's priorities. Um, okay, and then she says, would you then go and ask for some lab tests, some like a comprehensive hormonal profile? I know that I have, you know, when I couldn't find anything else. What about you, Brad? Pardon me? Would you ask for them, would you ask the client to get a lab test or a hormone profile, you know, if nothing yeah. else is checking out? Once I step through all the things that like I can acutely control, you know, mm -hmm. of adherence, physical activity, sleep, um, consistency, all those pieces, then it would be like, okay, you know, let's get some lab tests done. That would be, 
that's always the once I've ticked all the boxes I can control through my coaching, then I'll have that done. But that's it's never like the first step. It's always the very last question. Yeah, I totally agree. That's kind of when you are out of all other options. You know, sometimes you'll find that somebody's logging very consistently six days a week, and then, oh, conspicuously, that seventh day isn't logged, you know? And so what's going on on that seventh day? And they were at Buffalo Wild Wings, and yeah. Yeah, um, alcohol is, uh, you know, are, are they, is alcohol not getting recorded? Um, you know, things like that. So there's always questions you can ask, typically. Um, but it's hard to do and not sound accusatory. So, you know, you also have to walk that fine line as a coach. So I understand. Okay, um, Chris says thanks. Well, thanks for joining. Um, anything else you want to add, Dr. Brad? What's What's something fun that you can tell people um, that's gonna potentially come in their way or our new programs or anything we have on the horizon? Oh, we have a lot of stuff on the horizon. We have um, Training Vault 2.0 will be coming out in 12 days. Hey. Uh, we have some new products, new approaches to each perform that'll be coming out with the new year. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully we'll have a new main web page done soon. Um, email campaigns are brand new. There's just a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, that's exciting. Well, cool. Yeah. You guys, um, we'll be back after Christmas, after New Year's. So everybody enjoy their holiday. Um, be safe on New Year's Eve. <laughs> I like to stay home because I'm old and uh, that's what we do. So, I'm gonna go to seven o'clock on New Year's just because I can. I know, right? <laughs> because we're full grown adults and we don't have to stay up till midnight. Yep, I get it. Uh, cool. All right. Well, everybody enjoy and thanks for joining. We'll see you again in a few weeks. All right. Take care, guys. Bye.